Mark chapter 14, and you can be praying for, I have my echoes coming up on Wednesday. It's finally getting close to being here, and I'm glad for that. Bob said, he heard somebody say that you would rather be here in church than any hospital in, in town. You know, and generally speaking, that's true. But right now, if I could get this thing fixed and get my energy back, I think I'd rather be in the hospital right now. That's about how I feel. So, um, thank you very much, Deaconess. <laughs> Appreciate it very much. Okay, so we're in Mark chapter 14, and... Um, I've been trying to go with paragraphs here so we can keep on topics and so on in this chapter since it's a you know long chapter, 72 verses in it. Um, this next section we're in here, I don't know. We, I may have to do a Mark Tyson on you. I may just come to the end of the time and say, okay, we're going to stop right there <laughs> and move on. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. We'll see how that goes. You know, in this chapter... Primarily, we have come to the crisis point of what Jesus came to the earth for, and that was to die, and all the incidents, uh, the scenes surrounding all of that that's taking place, and we uh, dealt, and, and quite frankly, Mark deals more with the betrayal of Judas uh, to Jesus than probably any of the uh, other gospel writers and so you're going to see that pretty frequently through here. We've seen it already. So he, at this point in time, just remember, he's made his plans. He set his scheme in place, made an agreement with the, the chief priests and the scribes and so on and the elders uh, concerning their desire to kill Jesus. And it's amazing how people like that can find each other. One with the desire to be... A betrayer and set things up to help fulfill the wishes of those who wanted to kill the Lord Jesus. Then we saw how Mary, in anointing Jesus, it's, they were disciples, and particularly Judas was concerned about the waste of oil. And then we found that later on, Judas himself was called by Jesus the son of waste if you want to be consistent with translation. Of course, the Bible uses the word perdition. The son of destruction. Why are you destroying, wasting this valuable oil on Jesus? And so he sets his, his agreement, his contract with these for 30 pieces of silver. And then Jesus makes arrangement for the Passover. It's Passover season. And he makes arrangement to meet with his disciples in a private place. And while they're eating the Passover, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper and the things associated with the new covenant. The new covenant that would be established in his blood. And following supper, he told his disciples, he predicted that they would all flee from him and scatter and deny him. And of course, we know what happened with Peter. He vehemently denied 
that he would deny. And it uses those words with one with a an uh, is a compound verb meaning that he would he would um, um, utterly he would not there's and, and there was a remember an emphatic negation there double negative there is no way that I will absolutely in any way deny you and of course we can appreciate the passion of Peter in because I think a lot of us would have said that. And even today, even today, we would just be abhorrent at the idea that we would ever deny Jesus. And some of us have been in situations where we've been called upon to either deny or stand with the Lord. And some, you'll face that day one day. And you'll find that it won't necessarily be such an easy time. The disciples didn't find it that way either. It says in verse 50, they all fled and forsook the Lord Jesus, every one of them. Well, in Peter's denial, Jesus told him, he said, well, this very night, as morning approaches and the cock crows before, twice, before that ever happens, you're going to have denied me three times. And Peter, again, vigorously denied that he would ever do such a thing. Jesus then goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, takes his disciples. We saw in John, John's Gospel, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all of those, that there's a big, long, extended period of instruction by Jesus to his disciples as they were apparently all this time going over to the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. And he goes there with the purpose of prayer, intense prayer. And it's interesting, all the things that took place, you kind of have to read into the passage a little bit because it doesn't really tell you in any of the Gospels, but when, of course, the word Gethsemane means oil press, and so the implication was there was a garden there. It was probably then a walled garden. It had a gate, and so they went into the garden and apparently, Jesus left eight of the disciples there at the gate. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. They go on a little farther. And then they stop. And then he gives them some words of instruction about remaining here and being wide awake, alert. And then Jesus moves on a little farther away yet to pray. And of course, they have all the issues of falling asleep and not being able to be awake with the spiritual lesson and the application for you and I, that even throughout this present age of darkness, it's incumbent upon you and I to be awake and alert at all times. And then not only later on, he tells them, watch and pray. And so we found in this whole incident here, one of the most pressing scenes that reveal the humanity of Jesus, the humanness of Jesus. And we're going to see even a little later on today, you know, the, the, the Jews were not looking for God to come in the flesh. 
They were looking for a human being who would be an agent of God to perform these functions of the Messiah, who would be an anointed one, and would do all the things that the prophets had promised and said that the Messiah would do. And even here, we see this intensity of Jesus in pouring out his soul and exercising his soul before his father in view of what was to come. But of course, then we saw, he says, nevertheless, father, not what I will, but what you will. He was resigned in spite of his pleas, in spite of his prayers to doing what God had prepared him and sent him to do. Now, We came down to the end of that passage, and of course the disciples in verse 41, they were still sleeping. And about that time, while they were sleeping, Judas had gone to meet with the leaders, the religious leaders, and they had sent with them a multitude, it says in verse verse 43, of those who were coming with uh, uh, swords and clubs, uh, a great multitude... (coughs) from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So you see there, they didn't come. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders didn't go to the garden. They they sent this cohort to uh, apprehend the Lord Jesus and arrest him, or or at least bring him to uh, the Sanhedrin. And so in verse 44, it tells us then, this is the passage concerning the actual carrying out of his betrayal, It says there, now his betrayer, and nearly all the translations will tell you that, but if you look at the text, it says, now the betrayer had given them a signal. I find that very interesting that he is singled out with this article, the betrayer. Not a very complimentary term. And had given them a signal or a token, a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one seize him and lead him away safely. Whoever I kiss. Now, the kiss was a common form uh, of greeting in the Middle East and in Israel in particular. And in this situation, I mean, there was more than one way to kiss someone. You could kiss them on the feet. We saw that with uh, Mary when she was anointing him with the very costly nard. She kissed his feet, says. You could kiss him on the hand. That would be something akin to like, you know, kissing the hand of the king. You know, in other words, you were acknowledging yourself to a superior. Or you might give someone a kiss on the cheek or on the forehead. And of course, if it was an act of intimacy then you would kiss him on the lips. If you read all the commentaries about what kind of kiss this was, nobody agrees. (laughs) They just say, well, these are the kinds. I don't know what kind it was either. It doesn't tell us. Nonetheless, it was a kiss that clearly signaled to the mob that had come to to take him to the chief priests and the elders, who Jesus was. They wouldn't have recognized him. 
You remember that Jesus, well, later on, he tells him down here, Why, you come out against me like a robber with swords and clubs. I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me then. The point here is that Jesus was offended at the method that they were using and their treatment of him as a common criminal to arrest him. But they didn't, visually, would not have known who he was. In other words, these were most likely Roman soldiers and people that they had sent along. They were not the temple police because they would have recognized him. He was over there, well, this previous week he'd been over there every day teaching in the temple. So he had to be identified. Now, if you look down there in verse 45, it says, As soon as he had come, that is Judas, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, the word kiss there is the same word, except that it's a compound verb, and it means he kissed him with intensity or fervently. Now, some think that that means he kissed him over and over and over again, or others just meaning that he kissed him in such an intense way that he was easily recognized as being the Messiah that they were coming to arrest. Of course, in the eyes of the chief priests and the scribes, a false Messiah. And of course, that double designation, look at that, Rabbi, Rabbi. I mean, that's, all of this just simply points out that Judas was taking great care to point out to them exactly who the guy was they were supposed to take to the chief priests. And so they laid their hands on him, and they took him, or they seized him. That's the same word you found up there in verse 44. It's translated seized. Down here, it's, they just took him. And so one of those that stood by, it says, drew his sword. He struck the servant of the high priest, and he cut off his ear. Now, this is really an interesting thing here. And Jerry's brought up a couple times here recently and over in St. Luke's gospel how it just says Jesus, you know, healed his ear. He didn't reach down and grab that ear and slap it back on there and attach it. I mean, he may have, but it doesn't tell us. It just says he healed him. But the interesting thing about the word ear here is that it's a, it's a diminutive form, okay? So diminutive just means it was little. So a lot, a lot of folks think he just cut the earlobe off or something like that or cut a piece of his ear, and Jesus just reached over and healed him. Of course, if we look over in the other gospel accounts, we find out the guy's got a name. His name was Malchus. And then we also find out the name of the guy that, that chopped it off. His name was Peter. So Peter and Judas both are prominent in this entire chapter and the things that are taking place here before the Lord. Well, he responds, Jesus does, with this question about the manner in which they've come to arrest him, and it was swords and clubs and so on. Um, in verse 49, <coughs> I looked at it and I couldn't tell, but the scholarly people tell me that this is an incomplete sentence. 
that's a little bit puzzling to them, the way Jesus said it. But our King James and New King James, and I think the New American and all, they translate it pretty literally. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus just kind of stopped, like, why are you doing this? Uh, but um, the scripture's got to be fulfilled. This is this the way it has to be. It's almost like resigned to this idea that this is the way it had to be. The scriptures must be fulfilled. He, well, I don't think he would, evidently not talking about any particular scripture, there aren't any I don't that I could find and no commentator ever mentioned any that describe this particular scene. But I think he's talking about the, the whole gamut of the things that had to be fulfilled and this whole scene of bringing Jesus to the place where he would ultimately be crucified, where he would shed his blood and establish that new covenant that he said would be established in his blood. And so following all that, verse 50, it says, And then they all forsook him, and they fled. When they saw that the, 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 the seizing of Jesus was going to actually take place, and they were actually going to carry him off, it's like, it's over. This is, this is, I don't know what's going to happen now. Let's get out of here. And of course, I think they were compelled to leave because they had to fulfill Scripture. You remember from Zechariah 13.7 that we read a couple sermons ago, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus, of course, being the shepherd, the disciples being the sheep. And when he was struck, that is, when he was brought to this place where they had seized him, then the disciples fled. Now, <clears throat> there's an enigma here again in verses 51 and 52 because you, you look at that and you wonder, well, what, what place does this have here, these two verses? And they, they don't tell you much. There's very little information to, to uh, determine who's being spoken of here. As a matter of fact, nobody really knows. Most commentators think that it was the, the writer of this gospel, John Mark, himself being spoken of. It says, A certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth, and fled from them naked. Now what did this have to do with the whole scene here? I'm not sure. But there is a, there's a lot of conjecture, but there's a lot of little tidbits of information that you can put together to help us to decide. And I know Bollinger thinks it's his Lazarus. You know, and, and, and it, the reason why is because it says they... they uh, the young men laid hold of him. Well, it tells us, you know, that uh, the religious leaders wanted to kill Lazarus too. So it's very possible. I, I wouldn't throw that out the window. I'd say that's a good possibility. Concerning whether this is John Mark, it's a couple, some interesting things here. Number one, it says a linen cloth. And the, the, the name of the, uh, of the word there, the, or for linen cloth in the Greek, 
is related back to the word for India, the country. That's where the expensive linen came from. Was he a pretty well-to-do guy? Well, evidently. Was John Mark a well-to-do guy? Well, maybe so. He had a big enough home, you remember, that they met at his mother's house, Jesus and the disciples. Um, a lot of the homes were, you know, this, this uh, what do they call this uh, small home movement today? I can't remember what they call it, tiny houses or whatever. You know, a lot of the Jewish homes would have been very, very small. For someone to have a large enough home for the disciples to meet in would have been a pretty good sign of wealth. Maybe this could have been. This is a little pointer to John Mark. Maybe it's the case. If that's the case, how did he get there? What was he doing there? He wasn't necessarily a disciple at this point, apparently, but yet he was apparently well acquainted with the Lord Jesus. Somehow he had found out that something was going on in the garden, and he went over there to find out, and apparently it was a pretty sudden thing. Maybe it was news about they were going to arrest Jesus. So he jumps out of bed, wraps this linen cloth around himself, and takes off. And then for whatever other reason... They identify him as being somebody close to Jesus, and so why? I don't know, but it says the young men laid hold of him, and he made his escape and ran away naked. Now, I don't know if that means naked in your birthday suit or if he had some britches on. I don't really know. But you know, this was the spring of the year, Passover time. It was not necessarily warm in the evening. It was a little cool. We'll see that a little later. You know, the, uh, the, uh, Peter, when he followed them, you know, gathered around the fire with the, the servants. And the other thought, one of the things, I like to look over there at Lookout Mountain. I think that's pretty much the direction over that way. And, uh, you know, it's a little over 2,200 feet, I think, above sea level. Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet. So you're, you know, you're up, it's going to be a little cooler up there. I don't know what all that has to do with this whole scene here. But there it is. And it's only in, Mark, it's only in this gospel. <coughs> now, many think that, well, where did John Mark get hold of his information then to write a gospel account? Well, he obviously had some association with the Lord Jesus. Many think that he got most of his information from Peter. And if that be the case, then that would be another explanation of how this little tidbit about Mark got in here, this little personal aside. Just to mention, by the way, I was there. I saw these things happen. So finally then in verse 53, it says, They led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. So that's where they were. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes had assembled themselves together. They were meeting at some common place, and there they were sat waiting for these men to bring Jesus to them. And you'll notice it says all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Notice the word all. 
Notice that there's an article before each one. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. I think Mark is trying to make clear to us that all the prominent religious leaders of Jerusalem were there in this meeting. And that makes it significant as to what they are about to accuse Jesus of and condemn him of. As a matter of fact, if you just look down an extra verse, down to verse 55, notice there it says, Now the chief priests and all the council, that is to say, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, all made up the Sanhedrin. The whole kit and caboodle of them was there waiting for Jesus. Now, at the very least, there were 71 members of the Sanhedrin that made up the council. Matter of fact, it was the council that took care of large affairs like this one had been. They had a smaller council that take care of minor things, but this was no minor thing. They were all there. So I don't know how big this crowd was, but there had to have been at least 71 of them there, plus Jesus, plus Peter had followed them, plus we find out in John's gospel that John had gotten in as well. And then there were the servants that were there, plus the slaves. It was quite a crowd. It tells us there that Peter followed him at a distance in verse 54, right into the courtyard of the high priest. I don't know what happened to Peter from the time he denied Jesus those three times and their little trip over to Gethsemane and the time of prayer and all the things that took place there. But somewhere along the way, Peter had regathered and regained his courage. And he had determined that he was going to follow Jesus. Now, it was one of the other gospel accounts, and I I can't remember what, which one it was. I think it was in Matthew um, <coughs> where it says he wanted to see what the end was going to be. In other words, he wanted to see what the outcome of this arrest was all going to, going to be about and what was going to happen to his master. So he follows him into the courtyard, and it says he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. So it was a little cool there. Um, where was that place now? Um, oh, yeah, in verse 66. If you look over there just for a second, you'll notice what it says there now is Peter was below in the courtyard. Evidently, some think that the courtyard, in other words, the place where the chief priests and all that had Jesus was up on a higher level, and then maybe just a few steps down was where the servants were, along with Peter, and that's where they had this little fire pot uh, warming themselves. And it tells us there in verse 55 that the chief priests and the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They were looking for witnesses that would come forth and charge the Lord Jesus with things that would be considered worthy or deserving 
of death, and they couldn't come up with any. As a matter of fact, even the witnesses they had, it said they didn't agree with each other in verse 56, and they lied. They didn't tell the truth to begin with, and then even when they lied, they couldn't get their story straight. And so there were no witnesses that were considered credible. Well, the chief priests and the scribes and so on were not about to condemn Jesus on their own authority and bear the guilt themselves. And so, in verse, finally, in verse 57, it says, Some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now, the real question is, is, well, did Jesus say that? Well, if we look over in, um, I think it's John's Gospel in chapter 2, and verse 19. So if you want to turn over there, John's Gospel, chapter 2, and verse 19. Now, <coughs> again, just if you begin with verse 1 of, of chapter 1 of John's Gospel, and you follow the context through, you'll find there in Cana of Galilee, and so on, and... Um, then you find in verse 13, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So you remember from the beginning of Mark's gospel, we said he spent most of his time in Galilee. And you would not know from John's gospel that he regularly on, at, at the feast would go make the trip up to Jerusalem. This is early on. In other words... This is three years prior. Jesus made this statement in chapter 2 and verse 19. And he said, concerning the, the temple and the disciples' amazement at the, the temple site, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where you were caught in a pickle or somebody else was caught in a pickle of a half lie and a half truth, you know that it, sometimes it can be really hard to get out. And that's what we had here. Jesus said, destroy this temple. He, wouldn't, he didn't say, I will destroy this temple, but that's what those who bore false witness against him said. They testified I will destroy this temple made with hands. He didn't say that either. He didn't say anything about a temple made with hands. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, the answer to all of that is in the next couple verses. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, when you talk about the temple, you, there are a couple of different words used to describe it. One is hiron, H-I-E-R-O-N, and it's talking about the whole, the whole massive temple structure. But then you have another word, naos, 
and it's talking about the inner sanctuary. It's talking about the holy of holies and the most holy place. That's the word that Jesus uses here when he says, destroy this temple. He said, you destroy this sanctuary. Now, what was the point of all of that? Well, who dwelt in the sanctuary? But God himself. And so he's simply telling them, you destroy this place. And it's, to me, it's a self-identification of his deity. This God dwells in me. And of course, the half-truth of that was, destroy this temple. The lie was, I will destroy it. The other lie was, this temple made with hands. It wasn't talking about the temple made with hands. The temple structure, he was talking about that of his own body. This most holy place, this holy of holies, where God dwells. Now, if you want something interesting that I think that you will be an encouragement to you and you appreciate, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 3, we, of course, immediately think about the judgment seat, about the gold and silver uh, and precious stones, the wood, hay, and the stubble, and the things that burn up, and so on. And um, <coughs> Paul talking about building on the foundation, the proper manner, and so on. In verse 15, he says, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now watch in verse 16. Do you not know that you are the naas of God? You yourself. Notice the word, well, if you've got your King James, it'll say ye. If you have another translation, it'll just say you, but it's plural. He's talking about all of you Corinthians. Now we know all about the Corinthian believers, right? They were not all walking in a holy manner. And yet Jesus tells them, all of you are the naos, the sanctuary of God, the place where he dwells. And he says then in verse 7, and, and, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, all of you, plural again. So in verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple the naos of God, God will destroy him. Now pay attention to the word defiles and the word destroy because it's the same word. It's the same Greek word. So if you want to read it this way, if anyone destroys the naos of God, God will be destroy him. For the naos of God is holy, which naos you are which holy place, which holy sanctuary you are, even you Corinthian believers who were carnal and fleshly. So the point is, is that, yes, God does dwell with us, but that does not guarantee that we're going to live and act and talk and be in accordance with that holy place. We can do just the opposite. So when he said, you destroy this naos, this 
sanctuary made with hands, as they were implying and lying about. He says in verse 59, but even then did their testimony not agree. They just couldn't get their story straight. Of course, I think we all know. When you lie, you can't keep a straight story. You can only tell a good straight story when you tell the truth. Lies always cause you to tell other lies in order to cover up for the lie you're telling. Well, finally then, verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus. Now, it's, it's like, wow, we can't get anywhere with these people that are lying to us. So the high priest, in this essence, it's like he stood up and took charge of the meeting. And he goes to Jesus and he says, do you answer nothing? What is it these men, these men testify against you? And he kept silent, and he didn't say a thing. He answered them nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Well, this got a response. Turn back to Matthew chapter 26. And verse 63. <clears throat> you, you see there in verse 62, the same, the same scene. The high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these, mean these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And notice here he says, the Son of God. Mark's account says, the Son of the Blessed. And so we understand, and I think anybody looking at the context would understand, are you the Son of the Blessed meant God. And if he was the Son of God, then he would certainly be clearly connected. And so what Jesus, what does he say? I am. I don't know where we could go for a clearer answer from anybody than you would find Jesus saying in verse 62, I am. I am the Christ, and I am the Son of God, or the Son of the Blessed. Well, Jesus wasn't content just to sit there and say, I am. He continued on. And he said this, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. If you turn back to Psalm 110 and verse 1, Psalm 110 and verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, 
till I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus was simply giving them a picture of what Psalm 110 was. And the Jewish people understood Psalm 110 to be speaking of, and in verse 1 in particular, but the whole psalm to be speaking of the Messiah, the promised one. And then he goes on to say, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Why would that have been so instructive to the chief priests? Why would that have meant anything to the Jews? Well, if you turn back just a few pages, a couple pages, to chapter 13, and you might remember in the passage back there, when Jesus was talking about and admonishing about his disciples to watch and to pray, and verse 24, he says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He was clearly identifying himself as the one who would come in power and glory after those days of tribulation. Clearly, again, identifying himself as the one whom God had sent to fulfill all of these promises that the prophets had given, and then not only that, to establish God's kingdom on earth. What you and I would call, and the book of Revelation calls, the kingdom of a thousand years, or the millennial kingdom. Or you can call it the kingdom of Messiah, when the Messiah will rule over this earth. Don't think for one second the chief priest didn't get what he was saying. I mean, look at verse 63. He was so mad. It says, then the high priest tore his clothes. Did you know that that itself was an illegal act? Look, look back, um, forget words, Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 10. And he very plainly tells us there in the law, he who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes. It was strictly forbidden. I presume because they were not to act irrationally or emotionally. But boy, the, the high priest here was so disturbed at what Jesus had said in identifying himself as God's Messiah and his promised one who would come to deliver Israel and bring about the kingdom of God. And he tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? In other words, hey guys, he just incriminated himself. We don't need these witnesses anymore. Just go ahead and send them on out. 
And of course, in the eyes of the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, he had committed a most gruesome crime in calling himself the Messiah. And so, of course, in 64 then, it says, You have heard the blasphemy, what do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. The entire Sanhedrin council. It was a 71 to nothing vote. Not anyone in the Sanhedrin stood with Jesus. They all condemned him to death. Now watch what happened. Once the sentence had been passed, once that they knew Jesus had been convicted and that he was going to die, watch what they do to him then. Oh, they, they, go, they go wild. It says they began to spit on him and to blindfold him, covered his eyes, and then they took their fists and beat him and said, prophesy. In other words, see if you can tell us who hit you. If you're the Messiah, if you're who you say, if you're the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, surely you should be able to tell us who just hit you, Jesus. And then it says, later on, then it says, and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. I mean, you can just imagine this scene beating him with their fists, slapping him around, mocking him, knowing that he had already been condemned to death. Of course, that just to me just reveals their own weakness and their own sinfulness, their own vileness, once they knew they had a victim that they could treat this way. And I sure hate to have to quit here, but our time's up. But you know, the subject changes here because now it turns to Peter. And we're going to investigate that as we finish up this chapter next week, Lord willing. <coughs> Maybe I should say the next time. I hope I'm not here. I hope that the rapture has come and we're gone. I hope that i am got this thing fixed, and I'm not going to be able to preach next Sunday. I hate to say that, but I hope that's the case. I'm tired. And I'm tired of being tired, and I'm ready to get it going. So, There you go. All right. Yeah. The awesomeness and the gruesomeness of this whole scene is just... And, and it, I've thought about just going, taking a whole message and just talking about all the illegal things that took place in the arrest of Jesus and, and, and the trial and the condemning of him that took place. So many things went wrong and were wrong. But yet Jesus said, nevertheless, Father, not what I will, but what you will. And this was the Father's will right here. Let's pray. Father, as we bow our heads and as we lift our hearts to heaven,
and we meditate and contemplate the things that we've just read and the things that you have revealed to us that took place regarding your son and the things that you willed to happen and said and predicted hundreds of years before that would happen, all took place just as you said it would. And though our hearts be grieved, yet we're filled with joy and gladness because we know the ultimate outcome of the resurrection of our Savior from the dead and that he is alive today, sitting at the right hand of God, the right hand of power, awaiting that day when you will make his enemies his footstool. And he will come and rule this world with a rod of iron. That he will administer justice and righteousness in the way you intended for it to be. Dear God and Father, I pray that you would help us to live in light of that coming day and that you'd work the might and power of your spirit to conform each of us to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.